This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org. Welcome to a recap of our latest Third Thursday webinar. Hear directly from expert panelists as they discuss Parkinson's research and answer your questions about living with the disease. Join us live next time by registering for an upcoming webinar at michaeljfox.org. Well, hello, everybody. Uh, thank you for joining us. My name is Larry Gifford. I'm a proud member of the Michael J. Fox Foundation Patient Council. I'm the president and executive director of pdavengers.com, and I host the podcast, When Life Gives You Parkinson's. Today, we will be considering, we're talking about who should consider getting DBS, a deep brain stimulation. Uh, it's a surgical procedure for Parkinson's, and we'll cover how the procedure works, uh, what someone may expect uh, after the surgery, and um, you know the, the latest advancements on this DBS research, which there's a lot of cool things that are happening in the DBS world. We have a lot to discuss, so let's get started. I want to introduce you to our panel today. Uh, Dr. Kelvin Chow is the uh, clinical professor of neurology at the University of Michigan Medical School. Uh, he is also the site investigator of the Michael J. Fox Foundation's landmark study, the Parkinson's Progression Markers Initiative, better known as PPMI, at the University of Michigan. He is a DBS researcher and has written a book on DBS. Uh, welcome to uh, today's webinar. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, Jim McNasby is Chief People Officer and General Counsel at the Michael J. Fox Foundation. He was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease in 2000 and had DBS surgery in early 2019. His spouse, Donald Moss, an animal rights advocate, is also here with us today. Welcome. Hello. Hi, thanks. <laughs> and we have Dr. Jui uh, Jimenez Shahid, uh, Medical Director of the Movement Disorders Neuromodulation and Brain Circuit Therapeutics at the Icon School of Medicine at the Mount Sinai in New York. She leads the Registry for the Advancement of DBS and Parkinson's Disease, or RAD-PD. We'll talk about more, more about that a little bit later. Let's get uh, started with um, the questions. What is deep brain stimulation. Dr. Shahed, maybe you can start with that and then uh, Dr. Chow can take over from there. Sure, absolutely. So thanks for having me on this uh, webinar. I think deep brain stimulation is a very exciting therapy. It's actually been around for a long time for treating Parkinson's disease. Uh, but what it is, is a surgical treatment that is actually the most common surgical treatment used these days to manage Parkinson's symptoms. It's like a uh, pacemaker. Uh, for the brain. So if you think about a pacemaker in the heart, the wires are in the heart to sort of regulate the, the heart circuits. Um, but here we have a deep brain stimulator that delivers a small electrical current into those deep brain structures that are controlling movement. And by doing that, it can really kind of block the signals that are associated with some of the symptoms of Parkinson's disease, like tremor and stiffness and certain walking and balance problems. Um, and when we kind of get that stimulation just right for an individual patient, we can see uh, all kinds of improvements in not only just the primary Parkinson's symptoms, but also some of the treatment complications, such as the dyskinesias and the fluctuations, and maybe even the tremor that wasn't responding well to uh, medications. And uh, Dr. Shu, what are yeah, some so of the uh, symptoms that maybe it specifically does and does not help? Yeah, so I think the best way to think about deep brain stimulation is um, that it actually, in most cases, helps the symptoms that are helped by levodopa or the medications that you would take. Uh, and so when people uh, 
have Parkinson's disease and uh, go on for a long, longer period of time uh, and are treated with levodopa, they might have what we call on and off states, where uh, you take the medication after about a half an hour, medication kicks in, and then many of your symptoms improve, like the tremor, the stiffness, the slowness, walking problems, et cetera. Um, then you're considered in an on state, and then uh, maybe before your next dose, the medication wears off, and the tremor, stiffness, slowness, all those types of symptoms come back again. Well, uh, deep brain stimulation uh, basically makes you feel like you're on your on state, uh, throughout the entire day. So symptoms that respond to levodopa are the symptoms that are responding to deep brain stimulation. If it doesn't respond to levodopa, then in, typically it doesn't, it will not respond to stimulation either. The one exception to that rule is tremor. And so there are many patients who may have a tremor in which you take high doses of these medications like levodopa, uh, but it doesn't respond, uh, then deep brain stimulation will help that. So right. that's, that's the best way to think about how uh, how it would help you. Yeah. So if you have ex, you know extreme differences between your ons and offs, and it's impacted by levodopa, then you probably are a good candidate for this. Exactly. Great. Um, now, uh, who should consider DBS, and when is a good time to get DBS? Um, let's bring in our uh, some of our other guests here too, Jim and Donnie. What what made Jim a good candidate for DBS? Well, uh, I would say, you know, I, um, I had symptoms that responded to levodopa first. Um, and what were those? Uh, second, what were those tremor and stiffness uh, and uh, gait and speed of movement, I would say. Um, you know, bradykinesias for sure, too. Um, and then, uh, you, you know, um, the, what made me change or, or get the surgery was I was taking a ton of pills a day and I was dependent on them. I, wherever I went, I carried my Parkinson's medication with me. If I was on a trip or something for work, I would always have you know medicine with me all the time. And I just wanted to break the cycle of continued dependence on medication. Um, and my doctor thought I would, you know, my symptomology was... Uh, made me a good candidate, so we went ahead with it. Also, you were the right age for it. Yeah, that's good. Well, let's talk about that a little bit more. Dr. Shahed, uh, share some, some more information about the viable candidates. Is there an age limit? Yeah, no, that's a common question that we get. I think that, um, you know, Generally speaking, there, there's not a specific age limit for getting deep brain stimulation. We know that, you know, the main things that we're looking for are whether patients have had, you know, as, as Dr. Chu described and, and as Jim and Donnie were describing, the, the fluctuations that are uh, present and, and maybe even the refractory tremor. Um, but we do know that as people get older, they can have uh, other medical conditions and potentially other, you know, sort of risk factors that might affect um, their sort of response to the surgery itself. And so there might be a different surgical risks associated with uh, patients who are older. And so we do want to make sure that those are all investigated appropriately. Uh, but there really isn't a, a strict uh, age cutoff uh, for uh, DBS. And one of, the, one of the symptoms that is bothersome for a lot of people, especially with YOPD who are still in the work field, is, is sort of the, the, the decline of the executive functioning. Is that affected at all in a positive way by DBS? 
Uh, well, so uh, executive functioning is uh, unfortunately a common feature of, of Parkinson's disease, and um, it's not necessarily something that we look to be improved necessarily with uh, deep brain stimulation. Oftentimes, that's maybe there are some features of that executive dysfunctioning that can improve with levodopa, and to the extent that those happen, perhaps there's also uh, some improvement in that with uh, deep brain stimulation as well. But generally speaking, that's not something we expect to change. And when you think about sort of the long-term profile of patients who have undergone a deep brain stimulation and what their cognition uh, can or what can happen to their cognition over time. Um, you know, there's, there's a small proportion of patients who can have greater difficulties in certain areas uh, in association with the surgery, but generally speaking over time, uh, we're not seeing, uh, we may see Parkinson's advance, um, but we're not necessarily seeing it advancing it as a cause of, of doing the deep brain stimulation. Okay. And then as far as access to DBS is, uh, like most things uh, that I find with Parkinson's, I'm guessing there's inequities of, of access to DBS uh, in the United States and around the world. Yeah, so deep brain stimulation, you know, first and foremost, I think it's important for everybody to understand that it is approved by insurance. It is a well-recognized treatment. And so, um, you know, it's, it, it is something that people who have um, access to care for their Parkinson's and have insurance and things like that, those, those things can, you know, should not be barriers for uh, patients to get it. I think what we see are reflective of sort of the care patterns in Parkinson's disease. And so we know that uh, places that have have um, large uh, hospital systems or have movement disorders clinics or, or neurology programs where they see larger numbers of patients with Parkinson's disease, those are places where we're also seeing more deep brain stimulation happening. Now, um, it's growing and it's changing, and so there are centers or, you know, smaller programs around the country, but, um, you know, I think one of the challenges that we've seen is that um, if there isn't a place close by that the patient can go to to get that DBS care, it becomes harder for them to commit to it, and so uh, that sort of distance from the center, the whether or not they're being managed in a place that has uh, regular and, and sort of consolidated care for Parkinson's patients. I think those are probably more the factors that we're seeing in terms of patients' access to deep brain stimulation. Now, some of the studies do show that, um, you know, patients uh, of certain demographics are less likely to receive that, but I do think that it, it has a lot to do with how these uh, care patterns uh, for the underlying Parkinson's disease are, um, are, are situated around the country. Great. Dr. Shu, uh, when she talked about insurance, uh, what if you don't have insurance? Like, are there other places you can go to help get finance for this? I, I imagine, you know, brain surgery is uh, not a cheap uh, operation. Yeah, I, that's a really good question. I don't think there are other uh, options uh, out there if insurance doesn't cover it, really. I'm, I think... Um, uh, some some health systems uh, you might be able to call and kind of talk with them and kind of negotiate that they may have uh, certain uh, certain assistance programs that that may be able, may be able to help with it. But yeah, unfortunately, I, I don't think there's there's much help if you don't really have insurance. And then, are there other obstacles beyond the financial that people need to consider? Uh, to getting deep brain stimulation, I think yeah. it's really more like Dr. Shahad said. It's the distance from the center. I think is is one of the major obstacles, um, and and trying to find a, a good team uh, that can do it for you. That's that's more convenient. Yeah, one of the reasons you want to be close is because you still need to get you know the, dial it in. You know, 
after you have the surgery, you still have to see that and, and get the technician to, to uh, adjust the DBS, correct? Yeah, that has that has a lot to do. So after the surgery, there are probably there are fairly frequent visits where you need to kind of tweak and adjust the stimulation in order to um, make it better for you. And that can take a, a fair amount of time after the surgery. So frequent visits uh, is important. But also, I think, uh, as Dr. Shahed mentioned, a lot of times uh, the, these tertiary academic medical centers, the, the university centers, uh, tend to have a lot more of the, the people who are experts in, in managing Parkinson's disease. So they are going to be the places that tend to have a lot more of the, the deep brain simulation type programs because people have been trained, um, they, they see Parkinson's disease. And if you don't do this a whole lot, uh, it's hard to maintain a, a program uh, with, with good care and quality, um, quality uh, surgeons and, and people helping to manage it. Now, um... If if somebody is considering DBS, you won't you have to recommend them for that. You, you, their their, their uh, movement disorder specialist has to recommend them for the surgery. What? How important is the relationship that you have with the patient and the, how honest they're being with you uh, uh, way into that decision? Well, actually, so I, I think if um, if you're a patient uh, being honest with your neurologist about your symptoms, uh, I think is very helpful. I guess the example that I can think of is uh, I, I may have patients who kind of come in and I think they, they come in and they want to try and present the, their best self, right? So they may say, yeah, I may ask how, how are they doing? Uh, are they having any problems? And they say, no, you know, things are going really well. Uh, and and then I, I look at the spouse and they're shaking their head. No, you know, that's not going well. And then they start talking and then then when then you find out, oh, maybe when the medication wears off, they can't move a whole lot or they, they're having problems or more problems than, than maybe a patient is letting on. Uh, and I, I think that's actually very important um, just for your general care in Parkinson's disease because, uh, you know, from a physician's point of view, if you come in saying things are great, I, I might just say, okay, well, things are great. We're not going to change anything. And then so nothing's actually going to improve for you. Um, if you lay out your problems, then we can at least try and come up with a plan to try and make those, those better. And I think the same thing is with the deep brain stimulation after you have it. If we're tweaking uh, and you want certain symptoms to be better, if we can make it better, I can only make a plan if, if it's brought up. But if you just kind of right. say, things are great, uh, I'm going to say, okay, good. We don't need to change anything. That's good. <laughs> hey, Donnie, uh, do you ever catch Jim saying he's great when you know he's not? Um, it was, a, I always had to go to the doctor with him because I knew he wouldn't be honest about how bad his symptoms were if I wasn't there. And that, that affects, that affects me too, you know, when his symptoms were worse. So I, I wanted him to, to take better care of himself for him and, and also for me. And part of me wonders looking back if none of his neurologists re recommended deep brain stimulation surgery precisely because he said, you know, I'm, do I'm doing fine, everything's fine. It was actually uh, other care partners who asked me about why he didn't, hadn't gotten DBS already that sort of triggered the discussion between us. And Jim, looking back, do you wish you would have been more forthright? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I, you know, there's a piece about Parkinson's that's, you know, no fun to manage, which is, you know, you can 
you know, there is no cure, right? And so part of the defense mechanisms I bring to that problem is to try to put a positive spin on how I'm feeling or how mm. I'm doing battling the disease. So my my optimism wants to carry me across the, fis- the finish line. But I do think Donnie's right that over time, if you looked at my doctor's appointments, I was saying all the good things and holding back or being quicker about the bad things. And so, and that may have led them to think that I was less symptomatic than I might have otherwise really actually been. And that delayed a recommendation about DBS because of it. So, so when, when Donnie came back from talking to the other care partners who had suggested that you should get DBS, what was that conversation like? Um, well, you know, um, the, you know, the, the chorus from that meeting, which came from the care partners was life gets better and easier. You can actually turn back the clock on your symptoms. And that's what I felt like I needed at the time because, you know, I was, I mean, I was having lots of trouble with basic motor skills, like buttoning my shirt or tying a tie or anything like that. And, you know, and then now in retrospect, having gone through the surgery, all of those mundane things have become mundane again. You know, I don't need help carrying a tie, tying a tie. I don't need help tying shoes. I don't need help walking. I don't need help with my balance as much. So, I mean, a lot of things have been resolved and returned to what it's normal, which is great. Yeah, Doctor Doctor Shu, as as that sounds, you know, what's being described here sounds like a miracle. Miracle. I think people are lining up. Like, count me in. But there's there's some other things to consider uh, and some questions to ask while considering DBS. What are some of the questions people should be asking themselves before they uh, say, "Yeah, cut me, cut, cut my brain open." Well, I think um, the first thing is uh, you know whether or not you you would qualify. And so, are you having the motor fluctuations that we talked about, or are you having a tremor that's interfering with the quality? of your life, um, but it's not being treated adequately with medications. That, that would be the first question. And then I think when you're looking into deep brain stimulation, I, I think you want to look for a place that, uh, that that does it fairly often. And so it's not like there's a, a minimum per se, but I think you know a, a place that does one a week uh, is very familiar with it uh, and knows uh, a lot more about it than one that does one a year, right? So um, you know, probably one a month, a couple of months is is a place that where you want to at least uh, explore, and then uh, talk about the experience of the neurosurgeon and the and the team, uh, and then make sure that you go to a place where there's at least I, I well at least I think that uh, best outcomes come from a place where there's a multidisciplinary team helping you. So this would include a neurologist who specializes in Parkinson's disease and movement disorders, a neurosurgeon who they work in concert uh, together. Uh, There's usually a coordinator, which is like a nurse or nurse practitioner uh, who also does programming, but also is kind of the the glue that holds the program together. That's your contact to, to everything. So if you have problems, you can call this one person. And whether it's a neurosurgical problem like infection uh, or it's a neurological problem like you need an adjustment in your medications, that person can kind of help triage and and get you to the right person who can answer the questions. Many of these teams also have other uh, members, uh, such as um, social workers, um, speech therapists, media psychiatrists, uh, because uh, you know, as you know, patients with Parkinson's can have mood uh, problems, depression, and anxiety. Uh, and so uh, having this this team, I, I think, uh, is, is very important. Um, this, some, of, some of the DBS surgeries 
patients are awake and sometimes they're asleep, what's the difference? Well, so um, it depends on the center. Uh, what what they opt to do. Um, I can say that our at our center, uh, we basically keep patients awake for the surgery. I, I think there are several advantages uh, to this. One is that uh, when you're awake and you do the surgery, you have a couple of different ways to confirm that you're in the right spot. When they actually put the electrode in, uh, there is something called microelectrode recording where you kind of hear the signals of the brain as the electrode or the lead kind of goes through the brain. And when you get to the right spot, every single area of the brain has like a different uh, signal to it. Uh, I often use the analogy of, you know, I'm, I'm in Michigan. So you hop in the car and you're going to drive down to Florida. You turn on the radio station and you start out with Motown. You kind of get in the middle of the country into Tennessee and you hear country. You kind of go down to Miami, you hear some Cuban music. Well, we're looking for the, the Cuban music. You know, if you get out down into a structure called the subthalamic it has a specific type of signal and you know you're in the right place. And then because you're awake, um, usually we will test the stimulator. So we'll turn it on. And if you have tremor, if we can make it go away with the stimulation, we don't have too many side effects. It's another way of just confirming you're in the right spot. Um, the disadvantages of this, of course, is that you have to be awake, uh, you know, for this whole time. <laughs> uncomfortable being awake and you have to stay still, you know, for the surgery. You're usually in a frame and you're locked in and you can't move. Uh, and it can be very anxiety provoking. Um, so the asleep DBS takes care of all of those problems. Like you, you're not going to be anxious about it. Um, and you can see the structure where you're going to put it in. But sometimes just putting it in the structure, you may not, one, know, is it going to be effective? Because uh, you're not testing it at that time. Uh, and if it's slightly off to, or if it's close to you know, certain fibers, you might get side effects when it gets turned on where you might get tingling or um, motor contractions where it's stimulating fibers uh, that can kind of control the strength on the side. Um, so you may not, so, so those are kind of the potential downsides. It's not like everyone has those types of problems, but those uh, are, are the kind of the pluses and minuses of each. And there's no one right way to do it. So. A landmark study that could change the way Parkinson's disease is diagnosed, managed, and treated is recruiting participants now. PPMI, or the Parkinson's Progression Markers Initiative, needs people with and without Parkinson's, especially people age 60 and up who have close relatives living with the disease. Take a short survey today at michaeljfox.org PPMI to see if you're eligible. That's michaeljfox.org PPMI. Dr. Shahed, there are a lot of different uh, there are several different devices out there too that have you know risks and benefits. Uh, can you can you talk about some of those? Yeah, so actually I'll, I'll just say that the, the devices themselves, there's three different ones that are available. There's an Abbott uh, device, there's a Medtronic device, there's a Boston Scientific device. I don't think that the, the side effect profile is necessarily different from any of these. I think is what it is, is just the bells and whistles that are associated with them. So all of these different devices have been extensively studied. They have uh, shown that when you use these devices, patients with Parkinson's disease can get excellent benefits in their uh, clinical uh, symptoms and, and the degree of symptom control that they can get. 
get from it um, as long as we are following kind of what we talked about previously, which is appropriate patient selection and appropriate counseling about what the outcomes are likely to be. So from that standpoint, I think you can you can think of these devices pretty equally in terms of am I going to get good therapy? But I think there are some differences that do allow a little bit more flexibility, but in different ways with each of these devices. So we talked a little bit about programming. Um, once you get this device in, you have to fine tune it. And the way that we tune it will be different for individual patients according to what symptoms they have. There isn't like a recipe or a cookbook or anything, or, or just like dial it up here. And, and this is exactly, you know, the setting that you'll need for this particular patient. There's a little bit of trial and error that goes on. And so, for example, with the Abbott Infinity device, their uh, system has something that we call a directional lead. A directional lead, if you think about the wire that's in your brain, normally we would just have four spots on there that we could choose from. And what the Abbott uh, directional lead was the first to do was to come out with this way of being able to segment the lead and then to steer the current in different directions. So as Dr. Chu was talking about, if there are side effects in one direction of stimulation, maybe you could steer away from that and, and kind of focus the stimulation in an area where you know you can get the clinical benefit. So that was one of the first things that, that Abbott came out with. Another thing that they have in their platform is a way to help and guide the clinician in terms of choosing uh, the appropriate stimulation parameters. And then I think one of the more exciting things that has come out recently with their devices is the opportunity for something like remote programming. And so we'll uh, hopefully be seeing that coming out in, in a greater sort of release in, in, the, coming, um, in the coming months. Uh, but that's kind of where uh, the Abbott uh, device sort of um, has, its, um, has its sort of niche, if you want to put it that way. Uh, the Medtronic well, well, device... That would, really, yeah. that would really be beneficial for people who live far away from maybe where they had the, the surgery. Like, let's say you you live in Alaska and you have DBS, you don't necessarily have to fly to Seattle to get it to. So, you know, I think that's a, you know, that's a, that's a fantastic concept. And I think that's what we hope uh, will eventually happen, but we do have to recognize that there are still restrictions on the way that we can practice that kind of remote care. And, and even DBS care in that, in that sense is going to be subject to those same limitations. So I, as a practitioner in New York state, I have a license in New York, unless I have a license in New Jersey, I can't take care of my patients remotely in New Jersey. Right. So, um, you know, same thing would apply to somebody in, in Alaska, as, as you were sort of giving the example. So there are going to be those types of regulations. Right now, we're in a very fortunate state, which unfortunately occurred as a result of the pandemic. But what it did was to accelerate this kind of remote care. Uh, and now that we have the remote care capability with the DBS device, uh, with specifically with this device, um, you know, I think it opens up a lot of opportunities, but it's going to have to follow those regulatory guidelines. So that's a, you know, 2BD as as far as how, how that's going to play out. Um, if we talk about the other devices then, you know, the Medtronic device, um, their latest uh, release was the Percept device. And so this, again, fantastic platform. They um, have a directional lead similar to the one that I described for the Abbott device. Um, but the um, other advantage in this Percept device is actually the ability to measure brain signals. And so in Parkinson's disease, we're understanding a lot about being able to record in the same places that we're actually stimulating. And so this device enables us to be able to do that. Um, and there are certain brain signals that are associated with the symptoms of Parkinson's. And we can sometimes tell by looking at those brain signals, is the person on? Are they off? Or are they having dyskinesia? 
And so if you can use those signals to try to guide your programming of that patient, that can become a very powerful tool. And I think what this is moving us towards is the ability to be able to really individualize that symptom control for those patients. So if you're experiencing this symptom and we can see this brain signal, then maybe we should be able to do the stimulation this way. And if you're now having this particular symptom, maybe you took your meds, you turned on, you're having dyskinesia, maybe we can dial it down or maybe we need to just dial it a, a different way. And so that's what the, the new kind of Medtronic uh, Percept device platform is, is hopefully going to allow us to do. Okay, so the Boston Scientific device, they have a, a directional lead as well. Um, they also have the ability for the person who's programming the patient to be able to see the lead inside that deep brain structure that is being stimulated. And so you have this sort of visual tool to be able to guide the way that you choose your programming parameters. And so that interface is a little bit different and, and the opportunity to be able to fine tune that stimulation is also a little bit different as, as a consequence. And so as you can see, I mean, each of these companies, yeah. they all have great devices, but they all have different kind of ways of enhancing our ability to uh, improve uh, the way that we're delivering the DBS for, for individual patients. Now, is there a, a general um, post-op process that you can discuss, like the tuning? Like, how, how does that work? Yeah, so I think uh, the general, um, I think one general thing that's important for people to understand that it is a process, right? So it's not like you have an appendix, you know, kind of infected, you need to get it out, you go get it out, and then you're done, right? Problem solved. Um, the Getting the DBS device in is sort of the first part of beginning the process of, of um, you know, getting the symptom control. And so um, what we need to do in Parkinson's disease is to first locate kind of where's the best spot to give that stimulation. I talked about some different strategies that you can use from these different manufacturers to try to find the best spot. Um, but then once we do that, then we have to fine tune it and we have to fine tune it in combination with the medication. So then there's a little bit of stimulation adjustment, see how that works, maybe an adjustment to the medications, and then you go back to the stimulation and you can adjust that a little bit and then maybe do something with the medications. So there's this kind of back and forth um, kind of optimization that has to happen. And I think different practitioners might do it differently. I sort of do it on a monthly basis. And so I will kind of advise my patients that, you know, it might take up to six months for us to get it just right, but this is the reason why. And so I'll have you come in every month. We'll tweak something. We'll adjust a medication. We'll tweak something. We'll adjust a medication. And, and eventually, you know, by the end of that time period, we'll um, get where we need to be. And sometimes it's shorter and sometimes it's a little bit longer. It just depends on the individual patient. So let me bring Jim and Donnie in here again. Jim, what was the post-op process like for you? Um, well, you know, immediate, well, first of all, so after I, I got my surgery in three parts, right? Lead number one, lead number two, and then uh, the, the devices, the Abbott device in my case, I actually have two of them, one for each side. Um, and right when they turned it on, there was immediate relief for me of some of my symptoms. You know, I was tremoring a lot. My voice was very soft. And uh, immediately those two things were resolved. Let's go to the tape then. Let's, we have this on right. film. Uh, so yeah. if we could pull up the video of Jim, that'd be great. So this is Jim off medication. You can see he's shuffling and tremoring. We just got to the doctor's office, and we're going to turn on the DBS. So I'm uncomfortable, and I would like to feel better than I do right now. Okay, so it's on, on the right side only, okay? Let me know if there's any pins or needles. We're just going to progress slowly. Good. 
my God. Wow. You feel something? Yeah, I'm not moving anymore. I like Does that feel any different? Yeah, I'm like more free. Yeah, a little speedier, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. When you're not as rigid and tap. Good. Well, I was shaking a lot and now I'm not shaking. Not the meds, right? Yeah. The meds. And I don't, I actually feel like even though you haven't turned on yet, like my left side is calmed down. Yeah, almost. it's almost because like the reverberation from one to the other. Yeah. yeah. Do you feel Parkinson's free right now? I feel like the problem, which is always there, is not there. Like the heavy, like somebody turned my right arm back on. Mm -hmm. And my, my walking is the key thing. I'm walking up and down the hall like a word that I just had not felt like this in such a long time. So I'm walking around bothering all the other patients. Don't walk into a wall. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's pure glee. <laughs> I love seeing that. Yeah. Yeah. Make sure you don't uh, run, but I was running down the hall because I could. You know, it just honestly, I felt like an exuberance when I felt the stability. And then from that, that was the initial. Um, positive result. And then I actually had a, a little bit of a bad experience after that because I took a Cinemet and the Cinemet made my arms stiffen and my, my hands like uh, they were like moving towards my face and this kind of thing. And I couldn't control it. Um, uh, and then since that, that was the last Cinemet that I've taken. So, um, you know, so I would say, the, the, you know, you have to get it right. And you definitely have, as Dr. Shahed said, you have to work with other medications and tune the whole system. Um, but for me, it was about five visits before we got to me to be comfortable. And you can see how I was tremoring before. And now as I hold my hand here, I have zero tremor. Wow. That's no, amazing. And how long has it been since you've had the surgery? Two years, two and a half years. Okay. Uh, Dr. Shu, how long does the, uh, do the effects of the surgery last? Uh, actually, before I get into that, can I can I ask Jim one question? Because you, you mentioned sure. you haven't taken Cinemet since uh, since that day, the first day of your programming. Is that right? That's right. Okay, that's 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 an amazing result, actually. And so I I want to at least let people know that this is this is great. Um, but not everyone can come off medications um, with the surgery. Mo most people actually still need to take some of their medications, and I, I'm. On average, I think um, you know we say that people can reduce medications by about half uh, after surgery compared to before surgery. After everything is is optimized and and, and so coming off medications is is wonderful. I, I could probably I probably have a handful of people who are like that, but I, I just want to let people know that's not the way everyone necessarily is. But you can right. still feel great and have smooth motor function without tremor, uh, and but still be on a little bit of medication. Uh, no, so Larry, you were asking how long uh, does this last, and so uh, it's interesting. There, there was a, an article that just came out in uh, Neurology, which is our uh, one of our, our top journals in, in our field, uh, and it was published by the group in, uh, in Grenoble, France, and they actually looked at patients who were at least 15, many of them 20 years after having deep brain stimulation. Uh, in the subthalamic nucleus, which is one of the targets for deep brain stimulation. And at 15, 20 years, the main things that you wanted to target, which is the fluctuation, so uh, tremor, uh, slowness and stiffness um, that respond to levodopa, were still maintained uh, even that long afterwards. So, and, and you know, around 70% uh, improvement compared to uh, before. Dyskinesias were, were reduced uh, at the same 
uh, amount as it was a year, six months or a year after surgery. So this is these are symptoms that can uh, be controlled for a long, long period of time after deep brain stimulation. Now, there are other symptoms that do actually probably progress in many patients. So it's not it's not a cure for everything. Um, many patients can get more gait and balance problems over time. Uh, they can get more speech problems over time. Uh, you can get more cognitive problems, so problems with thinking and memory uh, over time. So those are the things that tend to progress um, despite the deep brain stimulation. But what we're aiming for, the fluctuations, slowness, stiffness, tremor, those, those can be maintained for a long time. Dr. Shahed, um... Should people be considering whether or not to do DBS now based on the fact that all this new, these new versions of DBS are coming out? Like, it's like, I'm, I'm a candidate for DBS and I'm like, oh, do I, do I wait a couple of years and see, see, see if the technology advances and so it's even better for me? Or do I get the good years back now? Like, is that, is that, should, should we be considering that? That's such a hard question to answer because I think it's such an individual decision about deep brain stimulation. And I think, you know, what we've talked a little bit about, obviously you've heard a lot about the, the fantastic benefits that we can see in an, in an appropriately selected uh, patient. Um, so, so there's still definitely this idea that there is kind of a timing that's right, right? And so I think each person is going to come to that sort of decision um, a little bit individually. But I do think that it is important for patients to understand that it is an option that is available to them when they are experiencing these kinds of symptoms. Um, I think that, you know, waiting for the newest technology is also a little bit of a challenging question to, to try to navigate because we know that there's great benefits from DBS now. And, um, you know, what, what probably is going to happen in the future is that it, it isn't going to be too hard to take advantage of those newer technologies. I mean, if it's a new lead design or something, obviously that's going to be a little bit more uh, of, a, <laughs> of an ask if you want to get the newest lead design, because that would take a new lead, right. uh, surgery. Um, but at least from the standpoint of some of the new bells and whistles that might be coming out, there may be ways to, to be able to get advantage of those, even without having to undergo another procedure to doing it. So, you know, I would almost kind of say if, if your life is affected right now by your Parkinson's in a way that is making it hard to sort of get through your day and to do what you need to do because of the fluctuations or the refractory tremor and you've you know heard about the dbs i think you should talk to your doctor and, and really think about whether or not it's it's something that can give you the relief that you need today as opposed to waiting for longer to you know make that decision and and there is you know, I think Dr. Chu was sort of referring to this a little bit, which is, you know, when Parkinson's progresses, there are things that can evolve that are harder to respond to surgery. And so we want people to get the benefit of the surgery, you know, when they can and, and not wait to a point where maybe those uh, benefits aren't as, as maximal. And so um, I think that needs to be sort of factored into that decision making as well. After you have DBS, are there restrictions to the activities that you can do? So I think, um, you know, I think you have to be um, sort of practical. Right? <laughs> I've, I've had patients who have uh, done some really fantastic things after uh, doing deep brain stimulation. We've had one patient actually who went uh, skydiving. I'm not going to say that I recommend that to everybody. I mean, you've got a pretty expensive piece of hardware in there. And so you want to be smart about what you do so that you don't uh, necessarily, um, you know, put yourself at risk of, of damaging that hardware. But, um, you know, I think most of the I mean, pa patients can get back to their, you heard this uh, already, that uh, patients can get back to their 
their usual things that they were noticing that they had a hard time doing as a consequence of their poorly controlled uh, Parkinson's symptoms. And so, um, you know, there are certain restrictions and, but they're kind of weird things. So like certain restrictions on, on diving, for example, like deep sea diving, or, you know, if you're a welder, then you have to be careful about around certain types of welding equipment. And so these are not necessarily things that apply to everybody, but in certain situations that, you know, there might be those kinds of restrictions. So, but for, for the most part, we just want people to get back to doing what they are used to doing. And, and, and there's really no reason uh, that you can't do that in an, approach, uh, an appropriately selected patient and a well-placed uh, lead and, and a good programming uh, strategy for the, for the patient. Jim and Donnie, have you found any restrictions uh, at post-op? Uh, well, a couple of things. I feel like because Jim has batteries here and leads here, I feel like he's a little bit fragile. Like I want to bubble wrap him whenever we leave the house because <laughs> if, he were, if he were to fall and you know fall on his chest, then you know is something going to happen? So I'm definitely even more aware than I was before the surgery of like keeping him like intact and like standing straight up on the street. We took a jog. This is now a year or so ago, and he tripped and fell, and it was just you know his hands you know his hands blocked the fall, but it was just it was just a scary mo moment. I'd also just like to uh, circle back to the meds issue. Jim said that he came off of uh, the Cinemet after the surgery. He still does take a couple of other medications a couple of times a day. He's not completely off of medications, but then there's some days he forgets to take it all together and isn't having symptoms. So is he on like agonists or? Yeah, it's, uh, I take amantadine and trihexyphenidyl, artane. I take one of each in the morning. That's my usual, but I forget at least once a week. Yeah. So... Uh, <laughs> No, it used to be that I knew exactly where the cinema was because for me that was the big reliever, right? right. The other ones were helpful, um, and my you know I, I've weaned myself off of the medication in the last two years. Every every six months or so, I've ratchet, I've removed another pill, so it's about time to do that again for me. Um, you know, and so I'm going to you know try to do that you know in the summer of this year, but um, but yeah, I mean. The, you know, and Azelect is considered neuroprotective anyway, right? And so, and, you know, that that's one that I might add back in, which I had gone off because I could, you know. But circling back to your question about um, yeah. activities, I mean, I I said that he's more fragile, but I, I kind of didn't complete my thought, which is that he can do a lot more now than he was able to do before because of the surgery. I mean, simple things that most of us take for granted, like taking a long walk, he really couldn't do that before. Now we could walk for six miles and he's okay. Um, he's just overall, you know, he has fine motor skills are, are back. He can live pretty much a normal life. And I, as a care partner, aren't don't have to like factor his sort of schedule and where he's going to be into the, my decision-making process because I know he's okay and he can function on his own. All right, except for the bubble wrap. I need help with that. <laughs> the bubble wrap, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, before, before, Jim, before the surgery, were you like me where you have like stashes of the levodopa everywhere you know you may work? <laughs> yeah. Every room. <laughs> yeah, I did. I used to, you know, I wore a suit jacket, you know, and so I would always have, you know, to work, I would always have my medication in every suit, you know, yes. just in case. Yeah, I would squirrel it away. Some people used to say I used to hide it in my cheeks. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. Okay, we're going to take a, a, a little bit of a, a break here. I want to tell you about uh, uh, the uh, PPMI. Uh, and so we'd like to... Uh, it's a landmark study. And they're recruiting again for, for PPMI2. Uh, and Parkinson's Progression Markers Initiative uh, is a study 
that could change everything about Parkinson's, uh, how it's diagnosed, how it's managed, how it's treated. And right now, the study needs people. They need uh, parents, brothers, sisters, adult children of people with Parkinson's. You can take a short survey to get started. Uh, you get, uh, get started to take action box on your screen. Uh, the study is also recruiting people diagnosed with Parkinson's in the last two years who are not yet on PD medications. So you can learn more about PPMI by clicking the link on the resource list and help spread the word about PPMI. The link to share is michaeljfox.org slash PPMI, michaeljfox.org slash PPMI. Uh, it, it, it's really, it, it's an amazing study. And if you can be a part of it, you can be a, you'll be a part of history. Um, I also want to tell you about the, the deep brain stimulation guide that just came out. Uh, I just printed it off this morning. It's, it's like fresh, hot off the presses uh, the last two days. And uh, it looks like this. Uh, you can download it on your computer. Uh, so just uh, if, if you're signed up for the emails, I know Rachel sent out an email earlier this week, and so did the Fox Foundation. Uh, but you can go to the, the Michael J. Fox Foundation uh, website and, and find it there as well. And it's a really great guide. Uh, answers a lot of questions about the, the DBS. Um, but we're going we're gonna to continue our discussion uh, and, and, and get your questions answered too. So don't forget to you know, go into the chat and ask your questions there, and we'll get to as many as we can. Um, what I would like to do is talk to Dr. Shu about the, the innovative new technologies and advancements in DBS. What, what, where, where are we going with DBS uh, into the future? Uh, well, actually, I think um, Dr. Shahed alluded to this in uh, some of the different features that the different companies have in their devices. Um, one of the things that uh, she mentioned about the Medtronic device, the Percept, uh, is this ability to be able to text signals in the brain. And so there are signals that kind of lead to, um, you know, if you have dyskinesias, there's a certain signal that kind of pops up. Or if you're having Parkinson's symptoms, uh, uh, they may disappear with, uh, with medication or with stimulation. So uh, it's detecting that and then being able to stimulate uh, that particular area or in a way that kind of helps uh, decrease the signal uh, that I think is a part of where we uh, where we see things going. And it's more like a, uh, two, two things, actually. One is uh, being able to stimulate uh, maybe more as needed as opposed to the way it is right now, where it's just constant. You set it, and it just kind of goes. Um, if there's a way where if you can detect certain signals and you can stimulate at that point to make the signals go away, you can potentially maintain function without having the stimulator go on all the time. Uh, and then there's also just to make it more of a, what we call a closed loop system where you, it just automatically detects these, you send the signal. And then so there's not as much need for the tweaking for a clinician to really adjust it. It kind of uh, adjusts it by itself. Um, this kind of smart DBS or adaptive uh, DBS technology, I think is um, one of the things that uh, potentially um, we, we may be able to have uh, soon. So I think that those are the, the, the ways to that, that the companies are improving things to be able to help DBS. So self-regulation or like automatic regulation in, in your body where it's just sort of responding to how you're doing. Yeah, that's, uh, that's the dream right now to be able to, to have to do that without us having to just manually go in and adjust and, and tweak and can make things just much, much easier, much quicker. Uh, and you can get relief more quickly than the waiting for the three, six months to kind of get things right. And Jim and Donnie, do you feel like that kind of advancement would help you? 
Uh, sure. I mean, you know, it's uh, if something was able to, I, I went through maybe five or six office visits after the completion of the surgery to get the current settings right. And they've been the same for about a year now, more or less. Um, and so, but, it, you know, if there comes to a point where, um, you know, my disease changes or it progresses, it, to have something that in real time could respond would mean a lot to me. For sure. That, that's great. Yeah, I mean, I would think so, um, you know, rather than having to wait. Um, yeah. uh, Dr. Shahad, uh, can you explain, we mentioned it earlier, RAD-PD, what is that and how, uh, how could it help uh, guide care directions in the future, decisions in the future? Yeah, thanks, Larry, for the opportunity to, to talk about that. So RAD-PD is that registry that you mentioned earlier. And so RAD-PD is something that we started a few years ago with the support of the Michael J. Fox Foundation, which we're very grateful for. And this is a registry um, of patients with Parkinson's who are undergoing deep brain stimulation. And Dr. Chu is a member of uh, our uh, number, uh, group of sites that are participating in this registry, and we're very thankful for that. But basically, the goal of this registry is to be able to very comprehensively characterize what's happening with deep brain stimulation in patients with Parkinson's disease. So believe it or not, I mean, you've heard a lot of great stories about DBS and all the results that it can give you, but even uh, though we know that a lot of patients can do very well, we do see differences in how individual patients respond. And we also know that there are a number of different decisions that can be made about how to do that DBS. So which part of the brain to put it in, uh, maybe which device or which device feature to use. Uh, should we change this particular parameter? Should we test this particular symptom. Um, and so we also know that different places that do DBS follow different things in patients. And so we don't really have this sort of very comprehensive way of assessing patients the same way over time. And so that makes it harder to kind of make um, generalizations about what are some of the best treatment practices, what are some of the most common side effects, or some of the ways to manage those side effects, uh, things like that. And so what we're hoping to do with RADPD is to take patients from the beginning of that decision-making process about DBS and to systematically track what's happening with them over time. And hopefully over time, then gathering that same information on every patient really allows us to draw some more firm conclusions about how to do the DBS, which patients to select, uh, which parameters, which uh, features, how to assess it, and, and really kind of get a handle on, on some of these issues and, and to understand then, you know, why certain patients may respond differently to the surgery or have uh, different problems associated with it. And I think um, it can be a very powerful tool to have that that kind of big data set, which currently doesn't exist in uh, Parkinson's patients with DBS. And so we're hopeful that we're, as we accumulate this data, that we can start making those connections and start creating those guidelines and, and, and those best practices for DBS. Now, is this something that the doctors are signed up for, or are you looking for patients to sign up for it as well? Yeah, so right now, the way that this uh, project is being administered is at the site level. So we have a group of sites. We have about 20 sites right now across the country that are participating in this effort. And so patients that are being managed at those sites will be eligible to uh, participate. And so, so that's, uh, cool. that's information. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. And that's part of the problem is we, there's no objective measurement of Parkinson's. So like we're, we're all just sort of like, hey, well, we could measure UPDRS, we could measure happiness, we could measure, yeah. like whatever, <laughs> there's all sorts of things we could measure. Uh, but finding finding a number of things to follow, I think would be really interesting. Uh, so how, when do you think you'll begin to get results on that that are viable? Yeah, so right now we have uh, about 170 subjects that are actually enrolled into the registry. And so they're at various levels of data collection. 
This project has been going on now for a couple of years, and we've had patients kind of at various stages, and we're continuing to enroll. And so um, we're accumulating. We, we had a very um, kind of solid set of data, uh, baseline data on a, on a small group of patients from um, kind of the, the initial uh, couple of years of the study that we were able to present at the American Academy of Neurology meeting uh, earlier this year. And so what we were able to show in, in that um, information was that this is like a real world assessment of deep brain stimulation. And what we're seeing is that there's patients from all backgrounds and with all different experiences with their Parkinson's disease that are getting deep brain stimulation. It's really important to be able to understand how these factors contribute to their experience with DBS. So that's what we were able to show initially. Right now we're working on um, um, uh, collecting uh, surgical information on, on a, a good number of uh, patients so we can start talking about uh, surgical decision-making and some of the things that the surgeons have to do in order to to get that electrode in, in the right place and, and to have a good surgical experience for the patients. And so uh, I think little by little, as we get more of that data, we can add to that data set and, and start making uh, more sort of comments on, on what seems to be happening and, and what seems to be working. Yeah, it, it's uh, it's interesting, the, this whole process of trying to make that decision. You know, I've got a 12-year-old son and I've got, you know, my wife and I've been married for 22 years and we're just we're, you know, we're at that point now where we're like, well, yeah, we're, it's getting close to where we know we, it's probably needs to happen. But then how do you talk to your 12 year old about getting brain surgery? Like, uh, is, have, you, have you had that opportunity to, to, to chat with kids about it? So, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of times patients, when they come in to make a decision, and we're talking about decision-making about DBS, it's like a family decision. So, yeah, I mean, I think we have had, you know, older children, sometimes younger children who, who get involved in that discussion, or at least are kind of aware uh, of what's going on. I think, um, you know, it, again, it's it's a very individual thing, and I think family dynamics are also individual, but it is a family decision. And so I think patients such as yourself do have, um, you know, to go back and, and kind of have those conversations with their family. This is why I want to do it, or this is why I'm worried about it. And I'm hoping that, you know, the evidence that we'll get from this registry will provide some more sort of really, you know, not, not so much of the how much did your UPDRS score, but really what were the improvements in life that patients were able to experience? I mean, did it help their mood, and how did it help? Help their mood? Did it help their ability to work? And how did it affect their ability to work? And, and so maybe some of these other questions or, or by being able to answer some of those additional questions, and that helps patients like yourselves in making those decisions and having those conversations with your family. Well, I mean, you saw the impact of, of, of you know, patient referral, that the impact that had on Jim and Donnie. You know, we're, we know from a patient perspective, like, hey, you get five years back, you get 10 years back, whatever. Mm -hmm. What is it? What is what is the what's the what's the success from a from a doctor's perspective with DBS? What, what's your you know what what would you tell a patient you know about like oh you should do this because why? Yeah, I mean, again, you know, we, we've talked a little bit about those sort of selection criteria. I think that uh, when patients are taking their medications multiple times per day, they're aware that the medicines are kicking in and wearing off. There's sort of this fluctuation going on. Maybe when they take the meds, it's causing the excess involuntary movements. You're having trouble sort of regulating it. It's really this idea of being able to get that stability back, which probably was something that patients experienced previously. And so I do, you know, believe that, um, you know, this, this feeling 
thing that patients frequently describe about being taken back in, in terms of their level of symptom control. And it's really to kind of gain, regain that level of control over symptoms that I think, you know, is, is so much the advantage of, of doing something like deep brain stimulation, where, you know, otherwise you're just sort of stuck with taking the meds and waiting for them to work. And maybe they work well, or maybe they don't work so well, or maybe they cause other problems. And, you know, this is really kind of one of the most uh, important ways that we have of, of getting that control back. And, and I think Dr. Chu mentioned this as well, whatever that on time is to be able to feel that more consistently during the day, like who wouldn't want that, right? I mean, I think uh, that's a very powerful thing to, to be able to obtain for patients. And I think, you know, those are the things that I, that I kind of try to highlight for uh, patients who I think are, are really headed in that direction. That's great. And so, so afterwards, how, how do you determine if it's success? Is that patient satisfaction? Um, I think that that plays a large part into it. And I'll tell you a little bit about what we're doing at Mount Sinai, which is to try to have a more comprehensive assessment of patients because we, you know, again, it, it's very easy to sort of say, oh, well, I got your tremor under control or I got your, you know, your on time and your off time. And you can talk about these numbers, but there's this whole qualitative thing about, you know, is the DBS really helping me that, you know, we haven't necessarily explored to the full extent. And so at Mount Sinai, we're really kind of taking, um, you know, a look at, not just the motor profiles of patients, but also the non-motor profiles. Um, so things like the mood or things like the cognitive stuff or, or other just sort of less tangible features of the Parkinson's disease and trying to understand how that really plays into satisfaction. Okay, so we fixed your tremor, we fixed your fluctuations, we fixed your dyskinesias. What are some things that are still bothering you? And we're finding that there's additional opportunities, even with deep brain stimulation, to address some of those other things as well. Cool. Hey, Dr. Shu, uh, is are there other uh, side effects that uh, people should be concerned about? Like, I, I know a lot of people who had DBS that now have a, a softer voice or a scratchier voice or they've lost their projection. Is that standard or is that just, uh, you know, uh, one of the many possible side effects that could happen? Yeah, I, I think those are, uh, so speech problems can be one of the more common side effects that you see with uh, deep brain stimulation. And so uh, you can talk about side effects in a couple of different ways. One is, you know, uh, because of the surgery itself. So, you know, placing the deep brain stimulation electrode in, uh, you, there are, it's possible that you could have bleeding from that stroke uh, infection of the device. It's probably, you know, on the order of one to 3%, somewhere around, around there uh, for most surgeons. And, but, you know, once you kind of get past that, then you can talk about side effects from stimulation itself. And like we, we said, the stimulation, uh, you know, kind of spreads in the brain. And so if, if you're delivering electrical current, it spreads to a structure in the brain that uh, controls something else. For example, speech, you're stimulating that area. You can get slurred speech, softer speech, or, or less clear speech from that. Some people get uh, tingling, numbness sensations. Oftentimes that's temporary, but if you turn it high enough, it can be more sustained. Uh, people can get uh, where they feel like uh, you know their their hands are turning in, or they have contractions in their face at higher uh, settings, uh, you can get more dyskinesias, like Jim experienced uh, too. And so that tends to peak over the first few days and then kind of stabilizes. But there's some people, you know, every time you turn it up, they get a lot more dyskinesias. Um, so and and some people over time can get some more gait problems as well too um, due to stimulation. So I think these are a lot a lot of the more common ones. Um, but again, it's individualized. It depends on where you are in the brain and, and where it's stimulating. And we try okay, to- a lot, of people, 
simulation and, uh, and interacting. So, yeah, we have a little bit of time here, but a lot of people are asking questions about the cost and the coverage. Uh, is there a general cost for this uh, the price tag? Let's say without coverage and then with coverage. You know, how what, what kind of what are we talking about here? Well, actually, I, um, I I don't know the exact cost. <laughs> That's I, I think the uh, problem with our health system is that uh, you know there's no kind of generalized cost, and hospitals list uh, prices that may not be what the actual cost is. Um, but insurance, uh, for sure, will cover it. It's been FDA approved uh, since 2002, so it's it's a well-known procedure. Uh, it's not experimental, and and insurances cover it for sure. Great. Hey, Jim, uh, real quick. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. And I was just going to say, as a frame of reference, I think um, at least once previously when I investigated this, it's it's sort of similar to uh, like a uh, maybe like a, a knee replacement surgery or something like that. There are hardware costs, and then there's hospital costs, and those are going to vary from region to region, from insurance to insurance, from hospital to hospital. Um, but most, you know, surgery offices are going to be able to give a breakdown to a patient about what their out-of-pocket costs are going to be based on their particular insurance coverage. And so I think. You know, the important part is that it is covered, um, and then there might be these individual um, variances and in, in how, um, you know, what the individual out-of-pocket costs are going to be. Jim, I'm going to do some rapid fire with you real quick. Uh, as DBS, uh, were you awake or asleep during the surgery? Uh, well, both, actually. I was uh, in twilight for most of it, um, and, uh, and then I... Um, Sorry. And then I was I, I woken up in the middle of the surgery to be, you know, count backwards by seven and do some things to show there wasn't any cognitive impairment and looking for my eyes to make sure that the electrical stimulation wasn't too close to my optic nerve. So they looked for nystagmus and other sure. things okay. like that. Yeah. Uh, all right. And, and has it affected your ability to be able to swim or anything? No, it hasn't. Okay, great. Hey, listen, we're out of time. Uh, I could go on for hours. Thank you again, all of you, for being a part of the community and for joining us today. Uh, don't forget to download the Foundation's new guide on DBS. It's right there in the resource list. You can just go straight there. Uh, and thanks to our panelists for sharing uh, their time and their expertise. Uh, we hope you found it helpful. Uh, we, we wish you all the best. Uh, have a great day and uh, be kind to yourself. you enjoy this podcast, share it with a friend or leave a review on iTunes. It helps listeners like you find and support our mission. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation at michaeljfox.org. Thanks for listening. This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org.